Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Today we have the pleasure to interview Dr. Tazine Jafar, who is a Professor of Health Services and Systems Research at Duke and US Medical School in Singapore, as well as a visiting consultant of renal medicine at Singapore General Hospital, a visiting professor of medicine at Aga Khan University at Pakistan, an adjunct professor of nephrology at Tufts Medical Center in the US, as well as a research professor at Duke Global Health Institute at Durham, US. Uh, and also at the International Society, uh, Tazin is part of the Research and Education Committee leading uh, the College of Experts. Tazin, such a pleasure, and thank you so much uh, to agree to do this interview with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your story and how you got involved in research and also researching hypertension. Well, yeah, sure. I'd be delighted to. So my story is um, a little bit long. <laughs> you know, I went to medical school at the Aga Khan University in Pakistan. I was so fascinated by the acid, base, and fluid electrolyte, you know, physiology and, and during my medical school that I decided, you know, in medical school that I wanted to pursue nephrology. But I have to say that 20% of our medical school curriculum was in community health sciences. So even as students, we'd go to the slums and do surveys where I saw a lot of diarrheas, infectious diseases, but at the same time, strokes, heart failures, poorly controlled blood pressure. So I was well aware of the disparities even within a low-income country. And at some level, there was this desire to make a contribution to eliminating inequities at a much broader level. So on the one hand, there's this renal is my calling. I really want to do this hardcore medicine and critical care kind of a thing in the hospital setting. But then, you know, I want to. So I put that thing, that design on the back burner. And I, you know, went for my calling, went ahead, did a, uh, went, you know, to um, University of Texas at Houston. And I'd gone to UT Houston as, again, as a final year medical student to do my electives in nephrology and in critical care. Again, you know, on the wards, um, pretty solid, completely purely clinical. And I loved it when I was doing this. And, um, and while I was doing my electives, I was offered and signed up for a residency in medicine pediatrics. Because at that time, again, you know, it was a dual thing. Gee, I want to do, I want to do nephrology, adult nephrology, pediatric nephrology, uh, quite ambitiously, you know, would want to come back and do like a big thing. And I didn't want to, at that time, always wanted to go back to Pakistan and say, gee, so that those goals were set, um, right? So then I went and I signed up and I went to, you know, complete my residency. And then, gee, I was going to do a um, fellowship in nephrology, which I then went to Boston um, and joined at, uh, and, and, you know, when I was joining nephrology, I knew that after doing this, um, my fellowship, I was going to go back. And I, there was this desire to quickly learn the skills, all the skills that I would need back home, right? 
So I said, okay, what's the best program for me? And I knew that Tufts in Boston was offering a, a clinical research track. And I, I got to know some research skills because, you know, like I said, on the back burner, there was this desire to do something at a broad population level. And I was, all my exposure thus far, remember, had been purely clinical. And not knowing how I would navigate this, I said, well, this is what I got to sign up. And I, I interviewed there and I liked what they had to offer. So I signed up in Boston under the clinical research track. My first year was purely clinical. Second year was a combined clinical research. And then I stayed on a couple of years doing purely research as a, as a postdoc. And I think that exposure, and at that time when I was doing it, they didn't have a full-fledged combined master's program with it. So I went across, hopped over to Harvard and I said, I got to join their MPH program as part-time. So I was doing my clinical research fellowship at Tufts and an MPH at, at Harvard, um, you know, running across campuses. And that was a brilliant time, brilliant opportunity. And I, you know, and again, you know, I got to do it. Uh, so, uh, so, I, so, so I started doing that. And my topic, right, of my research in nephrology was, I was looking, I was analyzing a large database, looking at the impact of ACE inhibitors um, on um, progression of non-diabetic kidney disease. And then, um, and also about analyzing the importance of blood pressure control on kidney disease progression. That's where blood pressure comes in and hypertension comes in pretty strongly. And then I said, okay, so I did that. I, I looked at, you know, optimal level of blood pressure control and said, I got to do this more at a population level. So I think that's when my interest in hypertension uh, more so came on kidney disease and then expanding this to the population level. And then, you know, of course, then I went back to, uh, which was my original intention was to go back to Pakistan. And I started writing proposals. What is the optimal level of BP in a population? That was really what I wanted to do uh, going back. And I, uh, I wrote a proposal on uh, something akin to uh, the sprint study um, but doing this in the South Asian. So I was like, gee, South Asians are different. I know South Asians are different. Are the blood pressure levels going to be different? And I say, but who's going to fund it? And who was going to fund it in Pakistan? And who was going to fund this for a recent, you know, post, uh, somebody who's just finished a postdoc and, and, and a junior assistant professor going back uh, with no prior, you know, track record of research in a, low middle income country setting with, you know, very little evidence to show that there was an infrastructure even, and nobody was funding non-communicable diseases in low middle income country. So it was, you know, but, you know, you're going back thinking, gee, it's all going to happen. <laughs> so, you know, against that backdrop with those ambitions, those ideals, I'm like, no, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. I wrote to, I searched for funders. I searched for uh, you know, I thought the Welcome Trust was the one place I was funding, very few funders. Welcome Trust was the one place I was funding uh, non-communicable diseases work through their population health stream um, in developing countries. I wrote to them without any connections. Gee, you know, I'm, here's me. This is what I've done. This is my background. And I'm, I'm you know, publishing this, 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 and I want to go, this is what I want to do. And I wrote them a one pager of this one. They sent it to the committee. The committee come, came back with a, we like your ideas. We, we like, you know, but you got to do a little pilot and go away from your aim of finding optimal level. The blood pressure level is so bad. Can you do something more at a community level um, and do a more health stuff? 
So I think this is the feedback that comes. I listened to the feedback and I said, okay, back off, uh, redesign. Uh, so this is how my interest in more of a health systems came. Um, and I designed the COBRA pilot study. And they also said, get a collaborator from the UK and I'm sitting in the US. And I, so that's the, so that's my history. And then ISA, so I'm gonna fast forward here. We'll talk about mentors later. So then, um, I, um, uh, I got connected to um, some collaborators in the UK and I went back and we, you know, did my pilot study, launched the COBRA and study, which is a controlled blood pressure risk attenuation trial. Um, um, and uh, also connected with, of course, when I was based in Pakistan at the Aga Khan, I worked with and got connected with a lot of um, colleagues who at the ISH regularly went to the meetings, eventually also got the Boringer Ingelheim Award um, through the ISH and was a, participated in a lot of committees, the regional um, committees. And so that's been, it's been very positive uh, with me. So that was how how my, that's really my story of how I connected with involved in hypertension and also with the ISH. Tazeen, if you don't mind like me asking, like expanding a little bit on your, your beautiful story, you mentioned that uh, when you we were doing school, you were interested in doing like community research or uh, uh, research involving uh, like people, um, your patients, but then you said, oh, I need to put that in the back burner. And that's like what a lot of people like uh, that listen to us, they do. And sometimes they get like very stressed because they're like, oh my God, but I'm not doing the thing that I really wanted to do, like the thing that I love. So how, like, how did you deal with it? Like, how did you, how were you able to look, this is going to be in the back burner for now, but like, uh, but I'm going to do other things that's going to make me stronger for to go back to it. So my two questions here. So how did you deal leaving that in the back burner? And how did you know that was the right time for you to bring from the back burner to your main focus? Yeah, and so those are great questions. And I think we keep on struggling with that throughout a career. Uh, and, and things will, you know, you'll find. And part of this was uh, looking at what the opportunities are at the time, but also keeping a balance. And I... And so I think for me, the first thing was, uh, um, and this may not be, I think it was a time um, um, thing as well. Um, when I was training and where I was coming from, where I had to go back, people always said to me, um, um, you'll have to come back. Um, my, and remember I said my calling was renal when I started off. Uh, so that I went for my calling, right? But then I had to switch and, and, uh, and, and, and part of it was contribution at the, at the bigger scale. I did give up something. Remember I said that I wanted to do pediatric nephrology as well, right? So I, did, I, I trained in pediatrics, but I did not train in pediatric nephrology. I gave that up uh, and I gave that up for pursuing more of clinical research and really going in depth into that. Uh, and then as I, and I think it came from, in my instance, and maybe some people can do it. Maybe I'm, you know, just not that person um, that I needed. I, I just needed to go more in depth in, into what I was doing. And I, um, I don't think that I could have done justice, um, right? 
So, so I think that was that was a compromise that I made um, as far as my clinical um, and and for pediatric neurology, I also think that you just have to practice a lot more. As for me to keep a balance, and I'm still I'm I'm a practicing nephrologist. So I you know how do you keep um, the balance between how much you practice and how much research you do? Uh, and so I did have to keep that balance as well. Um, so I do not practice pediatrics. I just practice nephrology, uh, and uh, and and that too, right? So so you and and I've spent most of my time doing doing research, and where I went back. Um, to when I went back to the Aga Khan, there was uh, there were a lot of people. There was a lot of things that I was hearing, um, um, even for from. And I bet uh, there are going to be a lot of people in my situation who are going to be in low and middle income countries, who are going to be younger, who are going to be swayed by a lot of people who see people around them who get a very famous, very more powerful if they are more clinically active. Uh, and so there are those pressures. Um, there are other types of financial incentives for doing more clinical work. Uh, you just have to be more focused. You just have to know your goals. You just have to look at the bigger picture. Your And I think that focus and that goal is just very important. And just think, gee, I'm going to come back to this. But then also maintaining that balance and say, uh, so I knew that you know two or three months, I do have to go on the wards and do have to do this. And so I never gave that up. Um, and, and, and during your career, there's going to be times when it's going to be up and down a little, but then you always come back to it and then you prioritize and those prioritizing at the right time is important. You're writing a grant, you're writing a major paper, you're going to have to give up that, you know, those, um, that month of clinical work, but then the next year when you're not, you know, you, you got to make up. Uh, and so I think that's how you do it because you got to keep that skill. Uh, and I think that's how I've done it. Other people may do it differently. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I, I guess, you know, that's, that's, how, um, that's how I've done it. And, um, and it's worked out for me. Oh, I love to talk about following your dreams and keeping the focus based on your dreams. That's very inspiring. And Tazine, uh, like you mentioned that your role of the College of Experts and your role as the, the International Society of Hypertension. Can you tell us a little bit more like how the participation at ISH, ISH helped you uh, to further develop your career? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I've always been serving on committees, right? For, and I think that serving on committees and I have this word, my advice to the younger colleagues is always going to be, that throughout my careers, I've sat on grant review committees, professional committees, and I've enjoyed that participation. Remember that it requires time. Throughout, um, for the last, I would say, you know, 20 plus years, I've had, and you know, when um, I've had to travel three, four times annually, I've had to review tons of grants, I've had to review papers, I've participated in guideline meetings. Um, and, and contrary, look, review the material, it takes time, right? But the work is important for a variety of reasons. A, it keeps your eyes you know, you know, on the big picture of things. Uh, it keeps and um, your perspective, it keeps you on the cutting edge of things about scientific frameworks, important for networking, it's important for collaboration, it's important for the multidisciplinary type of work that you're doing. Um, so it's, remember that, you know, my, um, 
and likewise with ISH, you know, you're going to meet with lots of other um, partners and members. I lead multi-country projects. I've met with my collaborators who are, who, you know, on these meetings. So I would not have had these opportunities to meet with the types of members if I weren't going to the meetings. Uh, I, um, one of the uh, things that we are doing in the, um, um, now as a writing position papers and we are writing um, um, writing committees. So these committees are opportunities to do um, really um, impactful work. Um, and so I think, you know, these memberships and participation, these writing editorial for major journals, uh, that will have an impact um, even for, for one's personal career and also for the patients and the populations, right? Uh, and which is what we, we want to do. And I think your own perspective changes with time. At, you know, earlier on, you're looking at your focus of, gee, my own promotions, careers, but you're going to sit back in life and think about, gee, what impact have I made? And that will come at different phases in life as you go on. So those goals and, gee, okay. It, and, 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 and are, you know, oftentimes you're working and it's just pretty narrow focus. And then you're going to sit back and say, gee, actually quite a bit right? And quite a bit will, of it will come because you are working with other people. Uh, and so you, and I think that's really important. So I would really encourage working in professional societies committees because the, it, it, um, um, uh, it's, the impact really becomes much wider, right? And also you get to work with other people, not just hypertension, but also um, other conditions, you know, I'm working, I'm leading a mental health panel, right? Uh, right. So, um, COVID and so you get loads of other opportunities and you get to contribute to them, uh, which is very important and wouldn't come if you weren't doing, um, if you weren't serving on committees and if you, if you just stayed very narrow. And if you don't mind, like me, like going side, side note again, <laughs> like, the thing like the other thing I find like interesting what you said and then looking your CV was very clear like is this like a multi-country uh, aspect of your work and your grant applications as well and in a lot of like interviews that we have like one specifically we're talking about changing countries and apply from different systems and how the language of the grants are uh, they change right so probably like the ones that you have in Pakistan are different the way they write a grant is different from when you apply here in the UK, and, and I felt that too when I was in Canada and the UK here. So how, um, I'm super curious, like how easy is for you like to dominate those two languages? Cause you are very successful in this multi-country applications. So how was for you to learn in different languages and how can you, like how easy is for you to switch from one language to another, uh, the one type of grant language to another one? Yeah, no, I think again, that's a, that's a good question. And again, it'll come back to um, engaging with good collaborators. Uh, so it's not just me, remember, it's forming brilliant teams and getting outstanding collaborators to work with you. Um, and the science and the core of it is the same. The science doesn't change in whichever country, but the culture and the context changes. Um, and so you you adapt it to the local culture, and and so so I think that's what you do, and just a lot of stakeholder engagement, and so you bring them with you, and you work on the finer details, and a lot of consultative work, uh, and and I, that's the enjoyable part of uh, you know um, it's serious, it's impactful, it's, it needs to be done, uh, because the countries where we work 
um, are the, I mean, the problems are of are immense there, right? The health systems, you know, I work in a lot of lower middle income countries, um, Bangladesh, uh, Pakistan, um, Sri Lanka, um, the health systems are, and, and also not just in those countries, the rural areas and in, in the countries. So, you know, two thirds of people are not able to get to the hospital. Um, the cardiovascular death rate, blood pressure control levels are less than 10%. Uh, it's just really bad. Um, so um, it's, uh, and you know, and the other thing that I do is I actually go to the field sites my, um, myself and I, you know, talk to the, uh, to the people who are actually working in the health um, facility. And you'd be surprised to know some things is that the, the problems are similar, uh, how similar these issues are. Um, the context may be different, but the problems are so uniform. Uh, and I bet, you know, if I, and I've been to Africa, um, uh, it's again, it's the same issue. The solutions that maybe you'll have to tailor them uh, a little bit different to fit into their health system. But that's what I think we've done with the COBRA is that we found just standardize the issues, um, the solutions, and then you customize them to the local setting. And then it's not such a big challenge. Um, and if you and and then you work regionally and you see what are the things that you need to standardize, um, right? Um, and then if the health messages are contextually you have made contextually relevant, and you you um, uh, and the training and the core elements of the training are the same, um, how you fit into their system is the more important thing. Um, and so we work with them. And we listen to the stakeholder. You always have to listen to the. So your point of how do you work with them? You always. So it's not just the grant language, but also how the delivery is going to be. Uh, so you just have to listen to them. And if you listen to them, you'll conquer it. And I think that's what that's what I've seen. That's how um, our work, I believe, has been successful: is listening to them, and 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 getting people from the ground up is is, is the local collaboration um, is is key. We would not have been successful at all if we didn't have the, our team members from the ground. And a lot of my people, the my collaborators, have actually. So the other, I think, advantage here, uh, and I have to say, is the is the were not necessarily people who had experience in hypertension. They were people who had experience in maternal and child health. And if you have built a successful maternal child health program, you know, right, how the system works, right. And so you leverage on that and you learn from that. So I think we've learned. Well, absolutely. I always say that we can't find solutions for problems that don't exist. So having the stakeholders involved is so important to be able to find uh, solutions for the problems that they actually face. Yeah. Well, thank you. That, that was really beautiful. Um, so we, we're really passionate about mentoring. So we wanna try to ask a few questions about mentoring. So the first one is, if you can, uh, what would, uh, if you could define uh, your mentorship in one word, uh, what word would you use to define your whole uh, career in terms of uh, mentorship experience? In one word, in one word it'll be outstanding. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, and do you want to explain a little bit about that? So my mentorship um, will actually, and I think some people will identify with it, but you know, my, it, it actually started when I started my clinical um, research fellowship program at Tufts, right? So I went in very naive. Uh, I went in after doing my, like I said, it was my knowing that this is what I wanted to do, 
but having just done purely clinical work, right? So I needed somebody to, um, and so having a lot of passion, but remember passion only takes you so where, right? Uh, and that's not as good to have, it's definitely not, a, it's inadequate, right? So you need at that time somebody to um, keep you focused, to give you um, uh, um, the ideas, even to refine your ideas sometimes. And, and the time that I started, even to help you select a project, right? Because I was coming from some uh, a position at that time where I had minimal exposure. So my mentor actually helped me select a project because I was coming out a very early stage after a pretty solid clinical experience, but no research experience, right? So I was, I was actually, at that time, he suggested that, you know, why don't you um, use this opportunity, which was uh, the platform that he had. Um, and I worked with Andy Levy at Tufts, who was my mentor. Um, and um, a pooled data set of 11 uh, um, uh, uh, randomized clinical trials. But then I, I ran with it, right? So I was the one, I'm gonna take that project to my MPH class, start refining it, start discussing, start formulating a hypothesis, start you know doing the whole nine yard. Uh, and then I spent, um, how do constructing the database, cleaning it, sitting yeah, with the, although I had, and then providing the other thing that the mentor was doing was providing with the, with, with me with the resources. Uh, so a great programmer, a great statistician, but I was doing, I was sitting with the programmer. I learned SAS, right? And I'm sitting with the, with the statistician, but I'm doing the first cut for everything, right? And I think those skills were, I'm going to repeat, were essential for me. And they were essential for me, especially because I was going to go to a place where I wasn't sure any of that existed. Uh, and I'm glad that some of it did, I find, but these were essential things for me because I was going to go and I was going to be like an only person. And it did. And because I then went back and I did a number of analyses just myself, right? And if I hadn't learned all of this, I, I would have been wasting my time because when you write the grant, you're sitting for an, a year or so to hear back, right? But I had some databases and I started analyzing the databases and when I communicated, so I'm gonna come back to that story that it really helped me to know how to program, how to analyze, how to not just how to design studies and how to write papers, but actually how to do complex analyses and SAS and learn programming. So I learned those skills. And my mentor provided me with that time. He made sure that I was linked with the people, that I was, I, I knew all of those skills in addition to the critical thinking, in addition to you know, the, uh, the writing stuff. So I, my mentorship experience, although there wasn't a formal MP, master's program in the, where I was, and he also made sure that I was, was able to hop over and do whatever else I wanted to do to achieve my goals, right? And so the mentor also needs to make sure that the goals of the mentee are achieved, right? They're not just using you for whatever their thing and, you know, whatever. So that I think, and I think that's what I, that I think is, is key. So I had a brilliant mentorship experience because it helped me get to my goals and be very productive. And then I could use the same principles later in life, the type of research that I do now and that I did in later was different. I then moved on to implementation and I had to learn a lot um, um, on my own 
because the science of implementation research and hypertension was evolving as I was, so it was a lot of, um, uh, and it's been a great journey throughout over the last, you know, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the same principles, right, of RCT is what is what I've applied. And if I hadn't learned it then, it would have been, and I, and, and I kept the connections, right? And those connections, and I go back to, and I went back for advice, go back, and my mentor data becomes my collaborator. And those are the kinds of relationships that I think are really important. And I would hope that, you know, and I, cause I do the same for my mentees. Yeah, no, like you mentioned, like something that's really important that like your mentor, it's not someone that's just supervising your approach, but someone that's like helping you to plan and pave your way to your future, like not his future, but to your future. That that's great. So now like switching a little bit, like you, like seeing you as a mentor, not a mentee anymore. So how do you think is your uh, mentorship style? So I let my mentees be on the driving seat, first of all, right? So I have a very real discussion. Again, same thing. What are their goals? And they're going to be at different stages. I have different types of mentees. Some are medical students, some are PhDs, some with have a very statistical background, some are very epi background, right? So they come with different kinds and they have each of them will have a different goal. And I will be, and where do they want to go? What is their goal? Right. So I think that's my eyes are also on. My goal is also to align them and to make sure that they achieve what they want to achieve, right? And to guide them, direct them. Um, And then, you know, it's a win-win for everyone, right? So I think that's how, um, and to help them think and develop their critical thinking, provide them with the resources. Um, Some of them are more policy-oriented. Some of them even have more on the qualitative side. So I look at the strengths and each of my mentees are completely outstanding, right? And I learn from them, <laughs> right? So this is how, this is always one step ahead of me. It's brilliant, right? So I've been, I've been fortunate um, that yeah. each of my mentees, they have different, different strengths and they are, they're great and they have great uh, future. They are uh, on great tracks. And um, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And what uh, traits do you think a good mentee has? So I think the traits are, they have to be driven, um, committed, um, be able to take um, critique, um, efficient and honesty, right? Trustworthiness, which I think is really important. Uh, then I also think the ones who are really exceptional and each one of them, uh, the ones that I have, they have to be, I really like the ones who are able to think out of the box, right? And proactive, they're gonna bring the ideas to you, not gee, they're waiting for the mentor to come back and say, next step, next step. So not that, but you know, so not, not where you have to do a lot of spoon feeding, but people who are driven and gee, right? And of course, again, learning the skill sets um, and, and the focus here, remember, like I said, is on a long-term relationship. Right. So that's the that's the kind of thing that I think I would like that I see in in my relationships with my mentees. It's not just okay. Uh, It's where are we going together with this? Right. Yes. No, that's that's perfect. Um, So I'm I'm now thinking like about like, you know, uh, you mentioned like your um, 
you help your mentees like to uh, achieve their outstanding qualities and to to reach to that level. So seeing like for um, somebody who is looking for a place to to do that, what kind of uh, things or signs or anything? What should they be looking at in order to identify, oh, look, this group or this lab or this university, this environment will give me the tools to be outstanding? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, and I think uh, for a good um, training environment, and a good training environment really, first of all, has to meet the specific needs, right, of somebody's career. So you have to really think when you're looking for a good training environment, gee, where is it that I want to go? What is it that I want to do? When I was looking for mine, I was looking for something for a, a place where they were doing more of a clinical research, not so much lab-based research, because my, my um, uh, interests were more on the clinical research track. I wasn't at that time sure that I was going to do more implementation work. Uh, later, but I knew that I want to do more clinical. So, I, you know, when you're coming in, you're not exactly at, at that level, you're not exactly sure um, where you're going to go in the long term. You're very early on. So again, it depends, right? What stage you're coming on. But so some people want to do, you know, genomics, some people want to do nutrition, lab-based health policy. So you want to really want to see where I'm going. Do they have that kind of, will they be have expertise, first of all? Uh, that I am looking at or that direction, right? Uh, so does the environment provide that? Do I have a mentor who is going to be able to provide that, um, right? And is it just one mentor or do they have the support system? Uh, and then what's the track record? Is that new? Is this, right? Or have they doing, been doing this for a long time? Uh, what about the mentees, right? Their previous mentees, have they published? And if they've published, have they published as first authors? Are they progressing in their career tracks? Um, what is that MD thesis, MS thesis, PhD thesis? Were they completed on time? Where did they publish, um, right? So, and then where are they placed, right? So again, it depends on where my goals are. If I wanna be an academic later, if I wanna go join industry later. So I would look at where this place is, where, so my goals, and I would look at, you know, the program accordingly. Uh, so um, funding, am I gonna get funded? Uh, what are the challenges with that? What's the, if I won't get funded, what are, the, what are the backup? What are the contingency plans? Is there a research infrastructure to support my, my master's or my PhD project? What about the research networks? Future job placements, those are important for future job placements and, and career advancement. So I would look at a host of things uh, before making this decision. Yeah, thank you, that's very good advice, yeah. And um, you mentioned before about how you had to move countries to pursue some of your training and also to try to establish new collaborations. Um, was there any instance that you had to overcome the feeling of feeling intimidated to talk to someone? And if you had, how did you do that? Yeah, so that's a relative term, right? And being intimidated. And of course it happens, right? It happens at um, 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 you, you got to think about it, but uh, 
but you know, if you if you feel that somebody is being intimidated, um, intimidating, the way I deal with it, and I know, you know, I deal with people, I go talk to public health officials, I go talk to, you know, in various capacities, various countries. Um, and, and there can be a number of reasons. You know, I'm a woman, uh, first of all, um, and a researcher, and I'm sometimes demanding because I want, sometimes I want data, sometimes I'm asking policy questions, sometimes I'm asking tough questions, right? Where people don't want to answer. <laughs> Right, and when people don't want to answer, they will. Um, they can be whatever. So to say, oh, I, you know, when people don't want to answer, they can be intimidating. <laughs> so when they are, what I do is I try to keep a higher ground always, right? Um, and I think, and that's worked. And try to stay calm. So there are two things, um, and you maintain your position calmly. And I've always done that. Um, let's say okay, but this is it, and be assertive until I get a satisfactory response, right? Because I will always think about, gee, why is this person, you know, so I anticipate that some people are going to be intimidating, uh, and if they are, that's just too bad for them, right? That's good advice. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it depends on the situation. It depends who it is. If it is somebody who's just, just intimidating at, work or something like that in a professional setting. Otherwise, you keep a distance from them and keep essential interaction only. Um, but if it is somebody that you do have to deal with, you just, you know, you be more assertive and get what you want. That's it. And if you don't mind, like expanding on, on that topic, but more like in uh, collaborations, negotiations, yeah. uh, how's your approach? To, to that, like, do you study a little bit the your collaborator that you wanted to approach before going there? How do you expose your your problem or your idea that you wanted to collaborate with the person? Like, how it's your approach uh, to to get a collaborator? So again, I think that's uh, Augusto. That's a um, that's a good question. And collaborators. Um, and I'm going to keep the intimidating question separate from a collaborator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah no, it's <laughs> like it's the talking, let's say, it's the same subject in like talking to someone. But yeah, forget about the, the intimidating part. It's the, the fun Some part of talking. Both, yeah. And it is fun. My collaborators are outstanding. Right? Yeah. They are. I love my collaborators. They are all great, right? I couldn't have been. We are fun. And if it weren't fun, we wouldn't be where we are. So the, and it, it has to be, it's a long journey. It's a long-term relationship. Your collaborators move with you, they stay with you for a very long time. It's a great professional relationship that we have. And, uh, and I don't think that you would do it if you weren't enjoying it, right? So let me make that very, very clear. Um, so uh, if you're getting a new collaborator, it's uh, there are various ways. It could be um, because you've met them at a meeting or if you want to work in a new country for whatever, it's always through either a direct contact or you could ask somebody for um, um, a reference. I, let me give you an example for when I was working in Sri Lanka, for example. Uh, my collaborator there is completely outstanding. And I had contacted uh, um, um, a colleague um, for a reference in, in Sri Lanka. So that's how I made the initial contact for my collaborators. 
and then you make a team and then the person who was actually referred to you, they also make a team and then our current collaborator there is not the initial collaborator because they then move on and it's, it's, uh, is, is, is the co-PI who actually then becomes the PI. So, you know, how things happen and it's the, um, it's how people get along and, and it's also the commitments, right? So, so I think that's, that's how, that's how it usually happens is either you will meet the, the, the people or one of your um, partners or colleagues will, will recommend them. Uh, and recommendations are important uh, because uh, you do want word of mouth and um, their own their track record, and then is 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 really important. Um, and I've always used that. It's not like, gee, I'm going to search up somebody and then contact them. It doesn't work that way. Uh, and and that reference is is key because the person who's recommending you and then there's somebody else recommending them, and so there is that previous link. Right, so I would always, uh, and again, that's why I'm going to say, you know, um, uh, and then um, somebody will say, "Gee, I've known this person. I've been meeting with them at the committees, serves in this committee for the last five years, or I've known this person for the last ten years. Is a great person, is you know, uh, uh, or is a so those kinds of words mean a lot if they're coming from." a colleague in my department, they mean a lot because I know the colleague in my department very well, right? So that goes in a long way, much better than just a random recommendation. Or if I contacted the Dean of an office and the Dean says my ex faculty or my Y faculty, I would rather choose the words that, my, that uh, are coming from my colleague in my own um, department. Right, rather than the um, recommendation of uh, um, of the dean of another school, that's just how um, trust is. That's just how right um, yeah. humans work. <laughs> yeah, and and that shows like how really important it's for you to get out there and start building your network and getting to know people. Like it's and that that's the key. But it's key for like anything in your career nowadays. Yeah, because you know, and it'll come from, did you deliver on time? Do you respond to messages? Do you, do you actually do things? When you take something up, do you keep your commitments or do you say, okay, and then you back off? And I think those for me, keeping the commitments and delivering on time is really good. You don't have to be, sometimes for our collaborators, they don't have necessarily have to be the person who are actually doing the things on ground, but they need to get things done. Um, and, and so it really depends, right? Um, so it depends on the type of work that we're asking um, that we are, and they have to be uh, engaged. They have to be um, respectful. They have to, um, of the collaboration, they have to um, respect the science um, and the standardization. And again, like I said, trustworthy, honest, I think those are key things in a um, scientific collaboration. So um, those things are highly valuable. They cannot take this lightly. Interesting, like now switching, switching like a little bit like to diversity and inclusion. And I think like that's like the key words of your work and uh, your work to the community. And you recently participated like in a, in a talk at the Council of Hypertension uh, Scientific Sessions talking about the theme. Uh, 
So what do you think is the, probably like you discussed that in that session, uh, what do you think is the biggest issue around diversity and inclusion, not only like in, uh, in research or in health research, but also in uh, the career development of many uh, people? Yeah, I think the in the career development, um, you know, there is a there has clearly been an issue. Um, um, there has been, unfortunately, there are innumerable challenges um, for women researchers, um, for people of color, um, and uh, so those are those those are unfortunately um, um, they are there have been, and I and I and I think that. Um, there are biases that are, we've talked about it. They are, you know, cannot deny them that there are systematic structural biases, unfortunately, in the entire systems. Um, then they do trickle down in academia. Unfortunately, they are there. Um, they're just, um, so, but I also have to say that despite those challenges, I think we have to look at uh, the fact that many women and many people of color have excelled in hypertension research and they've made significant impact of millions of people, right? Uh, who are um, living globally in addition to making an impact for women in their own homes, right? Um, we, um, but the number of uh, proportion of accomplished women researchers and hypertension lags behind men, right? So then there's no reason why that should continue. Right, same thing of people of color. That should no reason that that should not be in proportion, right, to the their proportion of the population at least, right. And sometimes, so I think that these uh, inequities um, need to be corrected, right. So we need to create an environment where there is uh, opportunities um, for mentorship, uh, for training, and for career advancement. Um, and, and that environment is more conducive. Uh, hypertension is the leading risk factor for death um, in women, uh, also in minorities and blacks um, and other minorities. So I think, and I would hope that the women researchers would be inspired uh, in the field uh, as would be the minorities. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think that they, we can get a grip and unfortunately, you know, despite of all this, whatever work we are doing, the trends are not moving in the right direction. Uh, and I don't think that, um, that we can get a grip on blood pressure control unless we get, uh, you know, the 50% of our population is women, uh, unless we get more women involved um, at all levels and, um, uh, and make a concerted effort um, in our panels, in our authorships, in, um, in retaining the women, uh, in promoting women. And it'll have to come and we will have, it'll have to be loud and clear. Uh, I wanna see it on the websites. I wanna see it. Uh, so just don't have them hidden policies. It have, they have to be transparent policies at every institution that has to be a way to go. Uh, every professional society needs to make it loud and clear and then implement them. And then there needs to be how far did we go with this? Uh, so, I, and it'll have to, it'll take a little time. It's not gonna happen tomorrow, 
but if we start and implement the policies now, I think that by the, you know, in the next, uh, in the near future, I'm thinking that things are really going to be very visible and we're going to be able to make some difference. Yeah, I remember like uh, we were doing like a chat on the ISH uh, new guideline guidelines last last year, you know, beginning of this year. Don't remember now. I'm getting old, uh, but uh, that was one of the questions that we asked, like uh, why there's not like a lot of uh, uh, guidelines treating like uh, a specific case for women, or like why there's not a mention of like women uh, health. And the answer was because there are not a lot of studies, and we need to improve that scenario, like um, to get like not only uh, basic science studies or clinical studies like concentrate on, uh, on male sex and also the female and then other minorities as well that compose the heterogeneity of our um, population. Absolutely. And you know, it's un- like I said, it's unfortunate that this is the minorities are high-risk populations, right? But yeah. we just don't include them. We should be including more of them because we always talk about we having more high-risk populations. But why don't we include them more? Because they're more high-risk. Yeah, sometimes some people say like, oh, they're more complicated. It's like, no, that's not an yeah. excuse anymore. <laughs> no, that's, that's yeah. exactly right. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. So I think there needs to be a mandate. Uh, you cannot do a trial unless you include, you know, X number of high-risk individuals and make ethnicity one of the criteria, race one of the criteria. However you define it, it's a social construct. So however you want to, so I think we're going to have more debates on this. I don't have a clear answer for you right now, but at least the discussion needs to start. How are we going to define this? How are we going to deal with this right issue, which is a very important issue. So first thing is a recognition that we have to do this, right? Then we're going to have to come up with the solutions and those solutions will include a more research on this, more you know, test drugs, then evaluation of drugs will include the um, the minorities and the high risk population, and the social construct will have to be a part of the high risk group, right? Um, and then define we, that social construct. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I think another issue that uh, we're seeing is that uh, we had some difficulty in our own recruitment to get women. So how we engage better and attract more women to our trials uh, instead of just assuming that anyone can come to the trial, but actually targeting women. But also in the end of the day, we are doing research that we hope will have an impact in the whole, all different communities, all different races, gender, uh, whatever it is. How do we do research that actually has that impact when in the end of the day, people that are volunteering for research, sometimes they are very narrow. They're people that are educated, they're men. Um, we're actually targeting such a small uh, amount of the population and we're not really doing research that represents everybody that we want to treat, that we want to improve their health. Yeah. So let me also, you know, while we're on the subject, I'm just gonna, you know, Duke um, University and we're Duke anyways, but Duke University has, eight out of the 10 deans are women deans. Nice. And their philosophy, if you go and you search hard, you're gonna find them. It's not, there's no quota on women. So it's not like, gee, we're gonna get a, right? But their philosophy is just search hard enough and they're out there, but do a good search. Right? So I think that's the philosophy is that you do a good search, choose a little bit different criteria. Women are trained differently. They talk differently. 
there, right? So it's, it's just all of those things and remove the biases when you're doing the interviews. And I think that's what we have to do. Yeah. Oh, look, I have many committees that people actually call it up and said, oh, well, this person actually, this woman actually has the amazing CV and she has had, you know, she moved countries, she has had children. Well, yeah, this guy, he also has an amazing CV, but he has had none of those challenges. So uh, sometimes we still need people to actually call it off and, and highlight that because uh, even when there are other women in the room, sometimes we just even, uh, uh, we forget about it. So we need a lot of more, uh, uh, to be a lot more conscious about it when we're making these decisions as well. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, how are you doing? How are you searching up committees? How are you searching up the searches? How are you searching up the criteria, even the promotion criteria, what attributes you're looking at? those attributes have to change a little, right? So, and, and that, it, it doesn't mean the academic attributes, it means some of the other attributes. Mm -hmm. So the way we are, right? So I think that's what we have to do now, right? So you're gonna get very strong candidates. Um, and, and, and on, on cultural, right? yeah, on that cultural issues versus traditional KPIs. <laughs> That's exactly right. So I think that that's going to be one of the solutions. And, and so, like I said, this is something that we have to debate. We have to um, uh, extensively, and we have to do a little bit of out of the box thinking and say, but these are this is how we're going to solve this in the short term. This is our mid term strategy. This is a long term strategy. And with the long term, will obviously include you know more mentoring, more retention, more women conducive policies, um, um, and and those are going to help men as well. I think. Yeah. Right. And so, I think like something that you mentioned seemed like is the uh, a good active search and not like what I call like a lazy search, because right. when you apply for things, a lot of like these questions in grants, like, you know, they're trying to see if you have like a career break and everything. You can feel that those questions are just there because they want to say, oh, look, we are we're we're touching base on this. It's like, That's no, you just like you, you shouldn't be doing it because it feels an obligation for you to be seeing as a proactive institution, you need to make sure that those questions reflect that person's career uh, struggles or something that is going to help you to, uh, to assess their application or how successful they are. So it's, it's exactly what I said, like don't do things just because you feel like you need to do it. You need to do things because it's going to impact and it's going to change uh, something. So do an active, good research, but not a lazy one just for you to check. I checked that box. I'm, you know, I'm pro-gender, I'm pro-sex uh, differences and this kind of things. And you should be serious about it. Oh, I, I completely agree with you, Augusto. And unfortunately, I mean, as you know, I mean, a lot of the search committees are just, you know, I'm going to swift through things. I'm just going to, you know, um, not do a good job. And that's where the problem lies, is you really have to go back and say, well, yeah, have hold people accountable for what they're doing raise the standards and that's how raising the standards will happen. As people are doing a good job, you more a rigorous job, hold them accountability, then I think the, the then there are women there already, uh, put them, um, that's, you know, so you do things for them and there is still, you know, like I said, even, uh, th there is a lot of inequity. Uh, you're gonna have to take other solutions for the midterm and the long-term goals and, um, and, and th that'll happen um, over time. 
And what that'll do is it will raise standard for everybody because even the men then uh, will be will will develop other attributes as well, right? We will see more diversity, uh, and it'll if it's in it'll be a happier society, I think overall, uh, because uh, um, you know you need uh, it's not just one thing for women that gee you just you know you do this and then you're accomplished and then you're you know, you're sitting there just you know doing domestic chores unfortunately which is what they're doing mm-hmm. now uh, the most accomplished ones as well so i think you know you free up that time you make them um, contribute uh, according to their intellectual abilities um, uh, and Zine, just like to to wrap up our interview uh, i love this question because it gives like really hope to our early careers if you don't mind Uh, so you know about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it has affected many of our early career researchers and people that were starting their careers, opening their labs and kind of things. So what would be your advice or word of wisdom for these people to keep going strong and do not lose their drive or faith that their career is going to blossom? So, um, Augusta, first of all, I really feel for our junior colleagues. Um, COVID-19 has been particularly challenging for them. And uh, from a social standpoint, uh, for the fellows, for the ones who are, you know, their their social life, it's not just professional life, their social lives have been, you know, um, affected uh, really badly. Um, the work environment, and unfortunately, it's stifling with restrictions. Um, there's uncertainty about funding. Uh, so it's, uh, and then, you know, the ones who uh, have younger kids, Uh, there's a lot of research out there um, that's showing you have a kid under 18, there's more likely that you're suffering some, some kind of mental stress uh, more than others. So, so I think we, we've got to uh, hear that, recognize it. A number of them have been deployed uh, at some point in time to do a lot of things, COVID-related work. Uh, and that has been stressful too. And I don't know if other people have reached out to them um, you know, for some counseling, uh, because the systems right now or many places are still overwhelmed. Uh, so we, so I think, you know, they need uh, a lot of TLC from, uh, from, from the system, from us. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, some of them have developed themselves, uh, like, you know, like everybody else uh, have gone through it and are not even thinking about it and just moved on. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's unfortunate, right? But they'll overcome, we're all, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, uh, I would just, you know, as, as COVID-19 becomes endemic, um, I think things are going to get better, first of all. So that's my, and, uh, we appreciate the, you know, I think all of us do the work of our junior colleagues a lot. Uh, I also think that we've also recognized how important hypertension is and the end organ damage with hypertension is really bad for people with COVID. They are more likely to get COVID, they're more likely to get complications and they're more likely to die from COVID. And we know that even breakthrough infections are happening in them. And even after booster shots, some of them are getting it. So it's really bad for people with hypertension. And so there's a lot of 
on the one hand, there are, uh, you can go to work. On the other hand, there are also opportunities uh, to study um, 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 more research on hypertension during the pandemic. Virtual training and mentoring opportunities can be developed right now. Um, your databases are there. So I would say there are, think about the newer opportunities that can arise during this time. Um, ISH has also launched a number of e-learning uh, opportunities and e-learning curriculum, for example, on the ABPM. Uh, so I think, uh, I think I would look at, um, uh, I always say look at the opportunities that a problem gives you. Uh, so look at them. Um, at the moment when you have a, some time, I think the schools have opened uh, and kids are back in school. Um, so you're not uh, there trying to figure out um, how to work on their laptops. Um, so now try to use this time um, on some e-learning and um, some um, other courses. We can also leverage training courses that other professional societies are developing and adapt them for our hypertension trainees. So I think there are a lot of opportunities that are going to, that are already in the, just coming out or, or already coming out. I, if I were, that would be my advice to the junior um, trainees. And I think the field is wide open for them. Um, we definitely, um, um, I, I would make use of these opportunities. And I think the funding for COVID related hypertension research is going to be there. Uh, so I would definitely make use of that. And other is also going to be there because we want to, hypertension is becoming a huge problem. We, we really do COVID or not COVID, we want to, uh, we, uh, we, we want blood, better blood pressure control, all aspects of it. We've realized how bad it is even more, right? Mm -hmm. um, during this pandemic. So, so, so I would say there are loads of opportunities. Please reach out, reach out to any member. I'm sure you will receive a lot of support. Beautiful, beautiful to Zane. Thank you so much. Uh, so with that, like, I just like to say like a heartfelt thank you for giving thank us your you. time, giving us this amazing interview. Like I, I loved, like, I'm so lucky to get to interview all of you guys. Like, it's amazing. Uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm lost for words now because I'm so excited, but thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was amazing and such a pleasure and an honor to be able to talk to you and hear your opinion. And I'm sure it is going to be changing that a lot of thoughts, generating a lot of discussions and hopefully seeing an improvement in many areas for women in particular, for ELSA minorities. So thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to both of you. Thank you again for having me over. And anytime any of, any, any of the junior researchers want to contact me, I'm available. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.